0: And today we're very happy to have as our guest, Sarah Glancy, who is the founder of an organization called Speak Masterfully. Welcome, Sarah.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: We're happy to have you. And I guess to start things off, I would ask you to talk about what Speak Masterfully is.
1: What is Speak Masterfully? Well, it is my company. I am a public speaking coach which means I help professionals step into the spotlight with less fear and more fun so that their ideas can shine and their anxieties can take a backseat. So that's the, uh, the soundbite version of what Speak Masterfully is.
0: Right, well, that's lovely. Uh, the thing you, you, you mentioned, I, I almost heard you underline it, is two words, professionals and fear. Uh, <laughs> I don't normally put those two together but I know that the subject of public speaking is f- is full of fear. Uh, is, is this what you want experience with people?
1: For a lot of people it is. And I'll, I'll even say I'm a public speaking coach and I get Nervous speaking in public. I have to uh, calm down my nervous system even before an interview like this with a lovely interviewer such as yourself. But public speaking is one of the most common fears out there, whether you're a professional, an entrepreneur, or anything in between. So fear is something that I I deal with a lot.
0: Well, we all, of course, have been under a tremendous amount of pressure and fear this whole year. Mm -hmm. It's been a year full of um, do you understand it all? I don't know if I do. I, I know I agree with you, but what is the component of fear of speaking in front of people?
1: And yeah, so I mean, it- it's, it's actually it's pretty fascinating. It's hardwired into our brains. And the way I like to think of it is I blame our prehistoric ancestor who I'll call Gronk. So, Gronk is our, our caveman <laughs> ancestor. And a couple things you should know about Gronk is he has a really finely tuned fight or flight response, right? Because Gronk lives in a dangerous world full of predators. So, he needs to be really great at evaluating that's a predator. I need to either fight it or run away really fast. But unfortunately, Gronk's brain also evolved to be very fearful of social rejection. And you can kind of figure out why that would is a be. Is saber tooth tiger going <laughs> to I mean, maybe. <laughs> uh, but the fear, I think, is more around the tribe rejecting him. Because you know, back in Gronk's time, we we're even more tribal than we are now. And if you said something the group didn't like, you were kicked out. And guess what? If you got kicked out of the tribe, your chances of survival were not high. So that's why to our brains, even in 2021, the fear of social rejection, that feels every bit as lethal as the risk of, you know, being attacked by a bear. So that's kind of why the fear of public speaking is so common for so many people.
0: Well, that's true. And it makes total sense to me is that hardwired, if I do this these people are going to attack me for some reason. How do you help people sort of make friends with the, not the enemy, but the audience?
1: Well, I love that you say make friends with, because the way I like to think of performance anxiety, I actually invite folks, make friends with your performance anxiety. That's step one. Just keep in mind, if you're getting nervous, that's just your brain trying to protect you. So thank you, brain. We appreciate you, brain. And then I think the best way to make friends with your audience is one, to engage them. I like to think of public speaking as a conversation. So just like you and I are having a conversation right now. Now, if I'm doing my TED talk, that presentation, I may be doing 99% of it talking in that conversation, but it should still feel like a conversation. And that will really quickly ingratiate you to an audience.
0: I have a, a thought when you say that um, about today's world where we're mm. not in person. Because I do understand or feel that when you're in front of an audience and there are actually bodies there, that you can get some information and some feeling about how you're being received by that live people.
1: How is that
0: with Zoom?
1: It's tricky. And this is probably the number one complaint that folks have come to me with during COVID is, I can't read my audience and it's even worse when uh, folks turn their videos off. So I will say if you're in meetings and their presenter is speaking and you can keep your video on, please do it. It's just the humane way to treat the person speaking. But it's one of the hardest things is it's, it's difficult to pick up social cues over Zoom. It's even harder if the videos are off. But, and I would say the other thing that's really tricky is we're all really starved for eye contact right now. Because if we're looking at the other person on the screen they aren't seeing our eyes. When we look directly into the camera, that can feel like eye contact for the other person, but then I don't get to look at your face. So it's, there's a lot of obstacles on Zoom and I think it's a wonderful technology, but there's definitely some barriers to communication built right in there.
0: Absolutely. What is your advice to, if I were coming to you and saying, okay, I've got to make this presentation, how, what do I need to know and what do I need to do?
1: I love that question. Well, one, I would say when you're introducing yourself, if you can look directly down the barrel of the camera, that helps because it makes the audience feel like you're giving us eye contact. And then I think it's really useful to throughout your whole presentation, have moments that engage your audience, like asking a question and having them answer in the chat. Or I love to say, by a show of hands, and then I'll lift my hand up to demonstrate because we're also really starved for any sort of physical stimulus. So if you can get your audience moving while you're talking to them, that is an extra special bonus feature because we're starved for eye contact and we're starved for physical stimulus. So if you can find a way to layer that into your Zoom presentation, it's gonna feel a lot livelier.
0: Absolutely. I, I was just thinking when you were saying that, how uh, the other day I went out and I was walking somewhere and someone was doing something that I consider wonderful. They were, and it was nicer weather that day, like we just talked about. And they, were, they had a big garbage bag with them and a, one of those sticks that you pick up garbage with. And they, were, and they were clearly not inefficient. They were just another person. They're picking up garbage and putting it into the bag. And I said to them, boy, that's a nice thing you're doing. And he said, oh, thank you. That's all that happened.
1: But uh, I
0: felt so much better because I had that human contact.
1: That is such a beautiful thing. And I think now more than ever, those just moments of human connection are so important. And, and we're not getting as many of them, you know, the you used to have interactions at a coffee shop or you would spark conversation with someone while standing in line. And just those those moments of human connection are so precious. And hopefully now that the weather's getting nice, we'll have more opportunities like that, but that's beautiful.
0: I hope so, I hope so. So how did you get started doing this? What, what, what led you to this, this is a wonderful opportunity for someone to learn from you. How did you decide to do it? What led you to, the, to doing this work?
1: Well, I, I have to say my interest in public speaking and also storytelling, because I am a big nerd about storytelling, Uh, It started because I come from a theater background, so I went to school at NYU to study musical theater and was a working actor in New York City, but if you know any actors, which I'm guessing you do, uh, it can be pretty feast and famine, so I wanted to have something that I could do that used the skill sets that I learned through acting and through my BFA that would also pay the bills between acting jobs. And that's how I arrived at public speaking. I thought, like, what do I have training around? I was like, well, I have voice training and I have storytelling training. And also, I know how to deal with performance anxiety because nothing causes it more than having to audition in a leotard in front of a room of strangers. So taking all of those experience, I decided that I wanted to help folks who were not from a performing arts background speak confidently in front of a crowd.
0: That's wonderful, that's wonderful. I, I do remember, I say remember auditioning, I never auditioned, I was never an actor. I was a radio performer, but I was never an actor in that sense. But I, my wife was, and we, when we were early on, we were dating and, and she was said, telling me she was an actress. And I said, it's funny you're an actress, but you don't go to many auditions. And then she broke down, I don't say broke down, but she she opened up and said, I hate auditions. She oh, said, I love acting, but I hate auditions.
1: That, that is the most relatable statement you could say to any actor. I love acting, but I hate auditions. I've yet to meet an actor who enjoys auditioning. But it's a great, uh, it's a great place to learn resilience and to develop a thick skin, which are all great things to have as a public speaker. So I, I say it's a great training Absolutely.
0: ground. <laughs> great training ground. And and today, who are you working with? What kind of people have been coming to you and that you've been working with?
1: Originally, when I started uh, my practice, I was working mostly with computer programmers and software engineers. So really analytical people. Well,
0: yeah. Wait a minute. Hold on. Computer <laughs> people and, and Why were they coming to you? What were they? What public speaking did they have to
1: do? That's a great question. Well, this was in the before times, before we were in a pandemic, uh, a lot of folks came to me because they had to speak at technical conferences. So they had to present their research and like really analytical sort of work, which they had to translate to an audience that didn't necessarily understand how to speak tech. So those were my first- Well, that would
0: be me. (laughs) I I would like to to hear one that you call coach because speaking tech, I have a a 24 year old daughter. (laughs) Who speaks tech to me. and I have to ask <laughs> her to break it down.
1: Uh, yeah, there's definitely so a did translation you, process. <laughs> did you, what, what
0: kind of things could you help them with? I mean, I can tell the general things of fear and so forth, but how do you take something such as tech and make it um, op- not in- just interesting and uh, understandable to someone yeah. who's like not very good at tech?
1: That is the magic trick is how to make it interesting and accessible. And what I would say the best way to go about it is whenever you're, and this isn't just having to do with computer program. Anytime you're presenting on something that's really high concept is finding a way to make it concrete and putting it in terms where we can picture it because our brains are highly visual in nature. So if you can take a concept like, um, a piece of code that you wrote, and let's say it's a piece of code that's around oh. cybersecurity. Instead of talking about the, um, the cybersecurity aspect, you could talk about how you're protecting chinks in the armor. So you're taking something that is really theoretical and then you're using language that we're able to create a picture of. So metaphor is really helpful in this context, just giving us something that we can hang on to that we can visualize is one of the key things. Yeah. And then storytelling is huge.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that chinks in the armor makes total sense to me. Now, you've explained cyber you know, <laughs> security a little bit to me.
1: <laughs> Good, that was my goal in coming on this podcast was to really talk about some cyber security.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, not always the most favorite thing. What are the favorite <laughs> things that you'd like to help? What do you like to work with? What's, What's well, what gives you the most joy?
1: Oh, that's so funny. Well, you know, I was joking, but I actually love working with analytical people. It's one of my great joys is, and I think it's because my, my brother is an economist and a very analytical person, and my whole childhood was about getting him out of his shell and how to get a, a shy analytical kid to, to speak up. So I have a, a really warm soft spot in my heart for those analytical types. But I also, I love working with entrepreneurs who need to learn how to talk about you know the services or products they've created and pitch it out into the world. That's always really exciting. I work with a lot of attorneys because there's a lot of public speaking in that and they tend to be really story oriented as well. Like how do you tell a compelling story in an opening argument? So I'm pretty industry agnostic. I love working with folks in all industries as long as they are You know, I believe every single person has a story to tell and all they need are the tools to go out and tell it.
0: Well, that's very true and very interesting. And when you talk about entrepreneurs, I know because I've worked with them on my podcasts before and my first podcast, which I did for over seven years, mainly had to do with entrepreneurs in the healing profession.
1: Oh, wow. Maybe
0: that's a combination of two things that makes it very hard to present. they had a lot of trouble talking about what the acupuncture was or what mm. how they were different because that's the other thing how you need to differentiate i imagine uh, i would hope you from since we have let's say 100,000 acupuncturists in the city or something how are you d- differentiate that you're uh, someone special
1: absolutely and that that is the question that you know, it's one of the first ones on the list when I work with a new client is what makes you different from the 50,000 other acupuncturists that we could find on Yelp? And I think a big part of that is storytelling because what we really respond to is, you know, do I connect to that person's story? And I know you're a story person because you do podcasts and you're constantly pulling people's stories out of them. But I think that's what often we respond to when we, we meet an entrepreneur and we think, what makes this person different than this person? Not only
0: the person, but then sometimes it's the it's whatever they are offering too. Of course. So you or yourself are an entrepreneur.
1: I, I suppose I am, yes.
0: And how do you, how do you, I think you explain yourself very well in the in very short sentences there about storytelling and stuff mm. and how you can help people. How oh, well, you thank you. That,
1: you well, developed
0: that at the beginning.
1: Let's see. How, does, how long? I've always been a very verbal person. So I've been doing public speaking coaching for about four years but I've been a storyteller since age five. You can just ask my family. It was hard to get me to stop talking. So I, I think there's a lot of trial and error when you learn, you're learning your speaking style and what resonates with other folks. But uh, you know, I, I joke that I've been training for this my whole life.
0: Okay. Well, I have a question for you, which I don't usually ask, but somehow I think, but to ask it this time, if you were going to do a podcast
1: what would your podcast be? Oh, that is such a great question. Mm. I, well, I am a huge collector of stories, so I think it would have to be a story-oriented podcast. Mm, I, I think it would be a, a podcast about origin stories. I love hearing the circuitous routes that people take to where they are now. And uh, especially folks
0: who have, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Very few people, let's say, decided in middle school or in high school that they were going to be a speaking coach. I mean, I don't think you did. (laughs) What did you think in, in middle school or whatever?
1: Well, um, I, I have been pretty single-minded. I decided I wanted to be an actor when I was five and then have not vacillated from that course. But what I didn't understand when I was five is that most actors are also other professions. So I certainly didn't understand that speaking coach was an option until, you know, a few years back.
0: Well, you need a, you need a secondary gig <laughs> in order to make a, make a go as an actor.
1: Most and, of us do. you're
0: very, very fortunate. Yes, yeah indeed well i think it's i think it's fascinating that you have found that and that you have used the the skills that you had how much of the, of the acting training involved storytelling i mean you were a storyteller as you say from young age but as an actor when you are being trained at a place like NYU does storytelling come into it is it our cost in storytelling
1: absolutely i think most of my storytelling training actually came from the playwriting classes that I took at NYU because I'm super interested in the mechanics of stories and how stories function, why certain stories stick with us and others don't. So a lot of that came from more writing courses than the, the acting courses that I was taking. But playwriting was a huge influence I've always been interested in dramaturgy, which is really getting into the weeds of how a play functions. Um, and then I, I'm just right. an avid reader as well. One of my favorite books, which I recommend to everyone, is Wired for Story by Lisa Cron, which really goes into the science of story and why it works on our brains the way it does. Fascinating, fascinating.
0: Would you, I know you say this problem, and I agree with you, exists for most of us in terms of being fearful speaking up. That also seems to start early, such Mm. as in the classroom, uh, with raising, not raising your hand, even if you know the answer. Have you ever worked with kids or younger people in that area, like maybe college students?
1: Uh, I've worked with college students, and I also, I've worked with third through eighth graders teaching Shakespeare. And that was a really formative experience for me in terms of how I teach with adults. Because um, honestly, the skills that it takes to get a third grader to read a soliloquy are the same skills that it takes to get a shy computer programmer to uh, stand firmly in their body and present their research. But I absolutely have seen that. And you know what's interesting is I found that In third grade, they're really, really fearless, and it's not that hard to get them to to go for it and play. And it's usually around sixth grade that that self consciousness sort of creeps in. And it always breaks my heart a little when I I see these kids that I was working with at third, fourth, and fifth grade, and I see that little hint of self consciousness start, that seed gets planted. And I think that's really where um, kids could use a little bit more support around, you know, it's okay to make mistakes and play, and fall down, because we lose that somewhere along the way, I think.
0: Right. I think it also, I mean, I don't know, if I agree with sixth grade, yes, but eighth grade, definitely. I, I've, I've had, I have had. I still have two daughters, but I've watched <laughs> two daughters grow up, and it seemed to me that eighth grade, I mean, first of all, I started noticing boys, and that uh. created a whole nother issue uh, around self-confidence and about speaking up or not mm-hmm. speaking up.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Coaches could be very valuable at that age.
1: I agree. I think interventions, especially in that middle school area, sixth through eighth grade, and, you know, we all develop at different speeds and uh, environment has a lot to do with it. But I think there is definitely work to be done around empowering, especially young women to speak up. And I think you're absolutely right around eighth grade, uh, when when we're so focused on appearances too, that you, you can see a lot of young women I, sort of shrinking into themselves and wanting to take up less space, not raise their hand as much. I think it's a huge problem.
0: It is. I wonder if there's another uh, market for you. Uh, I won't charge for this. Uh, <laughs> college fr- coll- college freshmen. Mm. There's another group that I think of women uh, who yeah. have... They're hiding. They're hiding until they don't know what to say or who to say it to or how to say it. That might be a great, great course to offer at a school.
1: I mean, if you so if you know publishing. any uh, universities that are hiring, you feel free to send them my name. <laughs> <laughs> but I I, I agree. Right, I, I think at all levels, and I, I I absolutely agree. And I've also seen it for folks who are new in the workforce, young men and women who just started at jobs. There's a lot of self consciousness around. Do I sound professional? What does professional even sound like? And there's just a lot of baggage around that. I think being a young person who's new to the workforce.
0: I agree. I think that's a very difficult place to be and any help that you can give anybody would be really del- wonderful. Because as you get in there, you're, you're amongst people who are older and with more experience and you want to succeed but you don't know what to say. If, the right, if you say the wrong thing, will you be out? You say the right thing, will it help or whatever? Yeah,
1: I do actually have one piece of practical advice for for that that I would love to share, which is if you're a young person or really a person of any age and you're going into a presentation at work and you're feeling those nerves come in and maybe having some of that imposter syndrome of what if I don't sound professional? What if I seem nervous? Do I seem confident enough? I think it's really useful before a work presentation to remind yourself What do I want my audience to do or feel as a result of this talk? Because it takes the attention off you. Because it's really hard to be present and do good work in a presentation when you're constantly worrying about, what do they think about me? Do I look professional? Do I sound professional? It's just not helpful to the task that you're trying to accomplish. So sometimes externalizing your goal, making it not about you or how you're perceived, but really just focusing in on what do I want my audience to do or feel as a result of this presentation can be really helpful for lowering some of that imposter syndrome that bubbles up so quickly.
0: That's a wonderful piece of advice. And it takes, as you say, it takes the, the spotlight off of you and puts it back where it belongs on the audience, mm-hmm. who you're trying to reach absolutely uh, that's a great piece of piece of advice is there any tricks to doing that though i mean i i I hear it and then i go yeah but how do i get my mind to shut up
1: (laughs) yeah that's great so i literally i'll write my goal down on a post-it note and i'll put it on my computer so inevitably when your brain starts to wander to to, do do i sound stupid oh no i really lost my train of thought there I, i think i stuttered do they know that i'm nervous I have a little prompt right on the corner of my screen to go, oh, wait, no, that's what I'm trying to do. (laughs) This is what I'm trying to accomplish. And then I think also just taking two minutes before presentation to calm down that nervous system, doing some breathing exercises, feeling your feet on the floor and your sits bones in your chair to ground yourself and remind, remind yourself that you are a human with a body and you're not just a floating brain with a lot of anxieties.
0: That's very good advice. Very good <laughs> advice. I mean, I find it myself when I be doing these shows every week. I have to take 10 minutes beforehand, do routine stuff, read the introduction. Just remember, I know how to do this. And <laughs> I've been doing it for 10 years, but I, it's the same problem. And uh, we're all human.
1: We are. And isn't that funny? And the funny thing is, I'm sure folks who are listening to this you would never know that Todd does that because you always sound so comfortable, so at ease. But, you know, our, our, our experience of something on the inside can be so different from what the listener hears or what your audience sees.
0: Exactly. Also, here's a question. Have you talked to people who don't like to hear their voices, like when they're on a recording or radio or something? that they, they, I know I used to have that problem myself. I don't have it as much today because i so done it for so long. <laughs> what do you say to them when they say, oh, I, like, I hate the way I sound?
1: Well, usually, usually I like to just tell them our voices sound different on recordings than they do in our, uh, in our heads. And that has to do with how we process sound. Because when we hear our own voices when we're speaking out loud, we're hearing the sound in the airwaves but also through the bones in our ears. So a lot of times our voices sound lower in our own heads, and then we listen to our recording and we go, that doesn't sound like me at all. So that's just some of the science behind why does it sound so different in my head than on the recording? And then I usually ask them, what do you want more of in your voice? Because I don't think there's a good or bad or right or wrong way to speech, speak (laughs) to speech. Uh, But if somebody was like, I would like a little bit more lower overtones in my voice, then I would say, great, let's figure out how to access some of your chest resonance. So you have a little bit more gravitas to your sound. Or if you find that you're getting really tired after speaking, sometimes having a little hint of nasality, putting the sound slightly more in your nose, will help you speak for longer without getting tired. So I try to remove any sort of aesthetic bias from it. There's no better or worse way to sound. But I like to ask people, what would you like more of in your vocal quality? And then there are ways to access that just physiologically from a a voice perspective.
0: Well, that's that's excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Speaking of which, we amazingly are coming to the end of this quick half hour. It's been so much fun talking. But before we end, if people like, I mean, if I were listening now, I have a lot of questions for our audience members. So if anyone out there would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach out to you?
1: Absolutely. Well, you can learn a lot more about me and what I do at speakmasterflea.com. And then you can always shoot me an email at sarah, S-A-R-A, at speakmasterflea.com. And I'm always happy to hear from folks.
0: Well, that's wonderful. That's that's in the recording now. It will also be in the description of the show. And uh, people will will reach out, I hope, because you've got a lot to offer. And you've got a, a bubbliness about you that is wonderful also. That's delightful. And I thank hope, you, Tom. And in addition to doing this, this wonderful work, you, you uh, get back on stage some, sometime in the, in the not too distant future.
1: Thank Most you. I would time. love that.
0: <laughs> yes, I'm sure. Well, thank you so much. And thank our audience for listening to the Heart of Healing the Pandemic episodes. Thank you all.